I argued yesterday that when Paul says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom, he didn't limit that to the tribulations that come through mistreatment because we are Christians. In other words, it's not just persecution. It's all the kinds of sufferings that you meet in this world, which means that suffering with Christ and for Christ is not defined decisively by whether that is coming from those who disapprove of your faith. It's defined decisively by whether you are walking in the path of obedience. All suffering experienced of any kind, all suffering experienced in the path of faithful obedience to God is suffering with Christ and is suffering for Christ. Cancer, quadriplegia, AIDS, blindness, dementia in the life of a faithful Christian is as much suffering with Christ and for Christ as if you were thrown in prison or beaten for your Christianity. Now, don't misunderstand in in the larger context of what I'm saying that I don't believe in divine healing or divine miraculous rescues. I do. God can today, and he does today, touch people and take away their sicknesses and deliver them miraculously from extremely painful circumstances. I believe that. However, there is good reason in the Bible to believe that His ordinary way of applying what he bought at the cross and will pay off completely at the resurrection is to give it partially now. And his ordinary path seems to be that we arrive in the kingdom someday along the path of affliction of every kind. So let me give you one passage that's so important for me in that regard. It's Romans 8, 22 and 23, and it goes like this. For while the whole creation, we know that the whole creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of him who subjected it in hope that the whole creation would be set free from its bondage to decay. The whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then here comes this amazing statement. So he's just set up the world as a world groaning. That is a very apt description of this world. Under the curse of the fall, all the frustrations and all the pain and all the misery and all the sin is under this groaning that God assigned to it because of the fall in hope. And then he adds, and we ourselves, even we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I just don't think it can be much clearer. Even people filled with the Holy Spirit groan, waiting, waiting, waiting. How long? How long, O Lord, Alzheimer's? How long, cancer? How long in this wheelchair? 
How long with this disability? So sometimes he magnifies his glory through divine healing. And sometimes the groaning lasts until death and healing comes at the resurrection from the dead. Another text in that regard. Second Corinthians twelve nine. Paul had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Three times he asked, Lord, take it away. It hurts. Please, Jesus, take it away. It hurts. Thorns hurt. Third, Jesus, have mercy. Take it away. It hurts. And Jesus says to him in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, No, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. To which Paul responds, all the more gladly then will I boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So there we have one example, at least, where Jesus simply says, I could take it away and I won't take it away. I have a reason for not taking it away. Now, here we have to to pause and put in a parenthesis, which is not really a parenthesis. It's a huge hunk of the message When you use the word purpose, Piper, are you sure you want to use that purpose for a thorn, purpose for cancer, purpose for a suicide, purpose for a hurricane, purpose for a war? You want to talk like that? I mean, you know what you're implying, don't you? That God is somehow... Over this, God's not dropping the ball, not playing catch up, hasn't been backed into a corner, has no emergency lights flashing in heaven. Isn't that what purpose signifies? And you're going to now talk to us for a while about design, purpose in my pain, my mom's pain. In order to uh, do that, I think I need to address lots of things, and I only have time to address one. Let's address Satan. Because surely Satan's got a will. Surely Satan is beaten up on people. Surely Satan is deceiving. He's a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. Satan's got a design. Satan's got a purpose. So how do those relate? So I want to say two things about Satan and his designs and his purposes in suffering and the miseries of this world. Two things. I'll give you some text for each one. Number one, nothing that Satan does is outside God's sovereign rule. That's number one. Number two, you in Christ are totally safe from Satan's damning power. Let's just back up. I'm going to come around that and back to this issue of purpose and talk about purpose in a minute, a few minutes. But I want to just get in Satan's face here for a minute and make sure that you know 
at least what I think the Bible says about Satan's power in your life to cause suffering and misery. Acts 10.38, Jesus went about healing those who were oppressed by the devil. He clearly is in the world messing things up. Luke 13, 16, this woman, remember, she couldn't stand up. 18 years she was bent over and Jesus said, Should not this daughter of Abraham be healed whom Satan bound for 18 years? Satan bound her. That, that was Satan. That spinal issue was Satan, Jesus said. So I know he's here. I know he's alive. I know he does these kinds of things. So when I talk about God's design and God's purpose in them, I got to come to terms with, well, what's going on between God and Satan here? So here's my warrant from the Bible for that first statement. Nothing that Satan does in your life or your family or Nicaragua or Iraq or Washington, D.C. or anywhere else in the world is outside God's sovereign rule. Do you remember the story in Mark 1? Jesus comes into Capernaum. There's a demon-possessed man that comes into the synagogue says to Jesus, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. To which Jesus responds, be quiet and come out of him. And he goes. And the people respond like this. What is this? He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. One little word will fell him. You believe that? If you believe that, you've got a huge issue on your hands. <laughs> when Jesus speaks with full authority, demons obey. Always. No exceptions. Which means, if they're tormenting you, he's letting them. Because he could say, stop. They would stop. As they do many times when Jesus says, stop. Here's another verse. Luke 22, 31 to 32. Here's Peter about to be tempted to deny Jesus. And Jesus says something absolutely amazing to Peter. He says this. Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In other words, Satan says, like he did to Job, because in the presence of God, give me, give me this man. I'm going to push him through the sieve of fear tonight. And on the other side is going to come Peter minus faith. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. When 
You have turned again. Strengthen your brothers. That's absolute sovereignty talking. Not if you turn again, if Satan doesn't succeed, but when you turn again. In other words, what I asked the Father to do for you was to let you go down three times, but not fail. And my Father answers my prayers. When you turn, be a rock. I'm building my church here. Third text. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking one, someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see what the connection is there between the jaws of the lion and suffering? Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. Resist him in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering, the jaws of the lion are the jails and the whips of Peter's day. So it looks like persecution is in Satan's control. This book is amazing. First Peter chapter three, verse 17 says this. That was five, eight. This is three, 17. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, I'm going to say it one more time and we'll move on to the next point. Nothing. Satan does in your life or anybody's life is outside God's sovereign rule. He does it by virtue of permission and what God permits, he designs. If you permit something that you could not have permitted, you permit it for a reason. He is not willy-nilly. He's not haphazard. He permits Satan's work for purposes. Here's my second thing that I said, namely that you in Christ are totally safe from Satan's damning power. Let me read you one of the most glorious texts in all the Bible. It's Colossians 1, 13 to 16. It goes like this. God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. Now, so far, no Satan in view. Just get what he just said. Jesus Christ came into the world knowing that against every person in this room, there's a record of debts. It is very long and it will be read in the last judgment to your damnation unless... Something happens to remove it from you. 
And what happened was that that record was nailed through the hands of Jesus. Folded it up, big piece of paper, put it in his palm, put a spike on it, and nailed it there. It's not going to be presented in the courtroom at the end. You are free from every sin you have ever, will now, or will ever commit. That's the gospel. That's what Christ did for us. And the question is, what's it got to do with Satan? In the next verse, no break, no pause, no breath. Let me read it in flow. The debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he nailed to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in him. What does that mean? Satan's still moving. First Peter five, roaring lion. So what's this disarming that happened at the cross? It's this. Decisively, he will be thrown into the lake of fire someday because of the triumph of Jesus. But right now, the one damning weapon Satan has in his hands has been taken out at Calvary. You know what that is? There's only one way Satan can damn you. By accusing you successfully in the courtroom of God of unforgiven sin. That's the only way Satan can damn you. And that is nailed to the cross. He is stripped of his one damning weapon. Therefore, you can get in his face. And if he's about to kill you, you can say, make my day. <laughs> and he will be very frustrated that all he can do is kill you. I, I try to make this plain to our little kids at Bethlehem because kids are afraid of Satan. And, and they believe. Some of you don't believe, but they believe. And I say, look, look, he's got these weapons. He's got these fangs. I said, here's for the kids. He's got these fangs full of poison. And, and if he bites you, you're dead forever in hell because that's the power he has. However, at the cross, Jesus snapped him off. And all he can do is gum you. The, the, the kids, the kids, they just, they come back years later and say, okay, Satan was gumming me today. I said, well, that's okay. You just resist him. <laughs> so if there are any kids in the crowd, I hope you remember. The fangs are broken and his gums can kill you, but they cannot damn you. So that's, that's the end of my big parenthesis. Which was an answer to the question, you sure you want to use the word purpose? When you talk about suffering in our lives, are you sure you want to talk purpose language, design language? Don't you know there is a Satan in the universe? And my answer has been nothing he does is outside God's sovereign rule. So, yes, I'm talking about purpose and 
Number two, you inside that are as safe as can possibly be from his damning power in Christ Jesus as you trust in him. So now the question is purpose. And if we had hours and hours together, we would scan the Bible for all the purpose statements. And there are many. I'm only going to talk about one. And I think it's the most important one. I think it is the ultimate one of why God permits Satan to hammer you and why God ordains things like hurricanes and war and does not just throw Satan now into the lake of fire. I mean, if you've got an answer for that one other than the answer I'm giving now, you come up and tell me why he doesn't just toss him now into the lake of fire. He's going to do it at the end. So just do it now. I say to Jesus in my worst moments, you, know, you get your back up at Wheaton with God, right? Do it my way. I wouldn't run the world like this. And I just want to warn you not to talk to God like that. <laughs> Purposes. We said, Second Corinthians Twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking your thorn away. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I think that statement states the ultimate reason for suffering. Namely, There are aspects of the beauty and worth and power and grace and value of Christ that can only be seen when his saints treasure him in suffering above health. I say it again, lest there's any misunderstanding. Christ's glory is displayed through healing. I love it when Christ shows his power by healing and delivering people from prison. He delivered Peter by throwing open the jails a few weeks after he let James get his head cut off. So... I glory that James' steadfastness reveals the preciousness of Christ. And I glory that Peter's escape reveals the power and mercy of Christ. Yes! So, my answer to the question of what's he up to is that he's up to the display of the infinite worth of Jesus So let's close by looking at a key text. Let's look at Philippians 1. Um, It goes like this. This is the text I used when I came to Bethlehem 27 years ago as the banner I wanted to fly over my ministry. It is my eager expectation. This is. Philippians 1, verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I might not be ashamed, but that as always, so now, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life 
or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now work through for three minutes. For three minutes, let's work through the logic of that text. My passion, Paul says, is that in my body, the body that can be whipped, jailed, the body that can have sex and eat pizza and drink Diet Pop, that body... I want Christ to look good. I want to make Christ look great. Whether I live or whether I die. And then he says, and this is so crucial, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, how does counting death Gain, magnify Christ. My desire is that Christ be magnified in my body as I die, for to me to die is gain. And that's not hard. That's a final exam in a class on Philippians, would be in mine anyway. And the answer is, Christ is most magnified in us when we are most satisfied in him, when we lose everything but him. Death means the wife is gone, husband's gone, the kids are gone, parents are gone, Wheaton's gone, the dream for retirement or vocation is gone, it's all gone, and you're dying of leukemia at age 23. Like Zeke. Anybody remember Zeke? That was my, that was my senior year. His dad, who taught me English here, wrote a little article and said, near the end, Zeke called death sweet names. I never forgot that line. That means he was hurting really bad. How do the Zeeks of the world or the Pauls of the world or you, when you face yours this afternoon, perhaps, how do you make Christ look magnificent when you're dying? Answer, say, gain. If you put Everything that this life offers you over here and Christ over here and death takes all this and gives only him. What do you say? Gain. And when you say that, you know what happens in hell? They gnash their teeth. Failed. We failed again. We can't stand it when those saints treasure Christ and delight in Christ and are satisfied with Christ and enjoy Christ so much that he looks so great. They gnash their teeth in hell when dying Christians say, gain. And the angels, with tears running down their faces, they rejoice. Yes. Look how magnificent Christ is magnified. 
by being preferred above everything that life can offer. So, my brothers and sisters, treasuring Christ, treasuring Christ above all things, above health, above life, above friends, above a long career, fulfills the purpose of your suffering. My grace is sufficient for you. My power, my grace is completed and made perfect in your weakness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my heart's desire for these young people, especially here, is that you would so do a work in these days that they would see Christ as supremely valuable. More valuable than making a B or an A on a test. More valuable than being liked by their peers. More valuable than the degree in the new job. More valuable than a spouse. More valuable than mom being healed or me Living into retirement more valuable than anything. That's a miracle, Lord. That's a work of the Word and the Spirit. A work of Wheaton College. I pray that every faculty member would teach his or her course in such a way as to contribute to making Christ look supremely valuable over everything they teach and everything they do. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.